This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. And welcome to Behind the Horror. Scary movie fans such as myself will hear that a movie is based on a true story. A few of them we know, but most, well, we never go on to find out just what that true story is. So, in this series, we explore and find out exactly what the true story is behind the movies we love. The 1982 movie Poltergeist is a Steven Spielberg movie that starts us off with the United States National Anthem song playing on a television just before the screen goes to snow, like back in the day when channels weren't on 24-7. A family is sleeping in the home. Steve, the father, in a chair in the living room close to the television. Mom, Diane, and the children in their beds. The family dog is actually out roaming from room to room under cover of night, finding tasty treats that his humans have left around the house. The parents' youngest child, little Carol Ann, wakes up. She wanders downstairs into the living room where the flickering lights from the TV are illuminating the walls. She stares at the blank screen as she walks forward to it, kneeling down and staring into the snow. As her father lounges asleep beside her, she says to the TV, quote, Hello? What do you look like? Talk louder, I can't hear you. Unquote. This, of course, wakes the rest of the family. Steve looks at his young daughter, confused, as Diane, Carol Ann's brother Robbie, and teenage sister Dana all come walking downstairs. The little girl continues to talk to the TV, placing her very small hand on the screen. So it's the next day. We know that the family lives in Orange County, California. Steve is a successful real estate developer and the family lives in a neighborhood that he actually helped develop. Every house is very what I call cookie cutter, each looking nearly identical to the next, save a corner here maybe a paint color there. Neat and tidy. Predictable. Familiar. It is indeed a new neighborhood with young budding trees tied to posts to ensure they will grow straight and strong. It appears to be the epitome of the American dream. Now our family is going about their day, which appears to be a Sunday, 
as Steve is downstairs watching football with the guys and Diane is upstairs making beds. But Diane notices the family pet bird is dead inside of its cage. Outside, there appears to be an approaching storm as Diane, Dana, and Carol Ann bury the small bird in a cigar box in the backyard. That night, as lightning begins to flash, Robbie eyes a tree outside of his window suspiciously, his imagination making out shapes and features in the bark and on the limbs. Mom goes from room to room to tuck the children into bed. Carol Ann demands that the closet light be left on for her and Robbie, who both share a bedroom. Then we see Diane and Steve in their own room where they are sharing a joint and a chuckle. Robbie wakes up scared of a clown that is resting in a chair in the room and he throws a piece of cloth over it. He then goes back into bed, but he's up again and he walks into his parents' room to be comforted. So Steve takes him back to bed and as he's in there he tells Robbie and Carol Ann that when you see lightning you can count the seconds before another strike to be able to see if the storm is getting closer or moving further away. The kids begin counting the seconds between lightning strikes but eventually they just wind up in bed with their parents. You can hear the national anthem playing from the TV in the parents' room, and then the TV goes to snow. Carol Ann wakes up again and sits up in bed, smiling at the TV. She crawls across to the foot of the bed over to the TV. She sits down just as you see these strange flashing blips of light on the screen. She reaches out, and a white skeletal hand grabs out from the TV. Then a white, smoky mist comes and envelops the sleeping family, then shoots itself into the wall above the bed, making the room shake like an earthquake. Then the most iconic thing happens as Carol Ann turns around and says, They're here! What happens next? Those of you who have seen the movie know, and the rest will just have to watch to find out. But this movie is a classic, and I highly recommend it. This movie is based on the 1958 story of the real Herman family who lived in Seaford, New York on Long Island, consisting of husband James wife Lucille and their teenage kids Jimmy who was 12 at the time and Lucy 13. They lived in a white and green ranch style house that had been built just five years earlier. It was a very typical middle class or high middle class home for the times. Three bedrooms, one bath, kitchen and dining room, living room, and even a basement. 
the neighborhood was quiet, conservative, ideal. And I say quiet, but just a short 30-minute drive from New York City. On Monday, February 3rd, the day started out like any average day. It was winter. Lucille was a nurse who got home from work just before the kids returned home from school. She began to start making dinner as the teens entered the kitchen. All of a sudden, from around the house, they heard the caps of various bottles just popping off, the liquid contained inside spewing up into the air. Bleach, liquid starch, shampoo, medicine bottles, even a bottle of holy water emptied and the contents spilled everywhere. Obviously startled, Lucille decided to call her husband at work to tell him of the strange popping noises that they had heard as well as the bottles spontaneously popping their tops. James was just as confused, not knowing what to make of his wife's story. But everyone was safe and sound, so he chalked it up to just an odd occurrence and continued on with his work. But he also kept rolling it around in his mind. He thought about it during his train ride home, thinking perhaps the humidity inside the house was unusually high and that's what might have set them off, or perhaps a chemical reaction with convenient timing, but he wasn't sure. He got home around 7 p.m. and immediately went to check the bottles to see if he could figure out what had happened. After inspecting the various bottles, he was at a loss as to how screw-on caps on completely different substances just spontaneously burst off, spewing their contents. With no logical explanation, the family sort of brushed it off, just one of those freak things, and for the next two days, nothing else happened so the family put it out of their mind. Then on Thursday, as the kids returned home from school, the same thing happened again, this time also including a bottle of nail polish along with the bleach, rubbing alcohol, detergent, starch, shampoo, and again the bottle of holy water that sat on Lucille's dresser. The next night, it happened yet again. So James thought that mm, perhaps his son was pulling some sort of prank, considering Jimmy loved science, and he also loved to prank and frighten the family. So that weekend, James began watching his son closely, but his son never touched the containers. And yet, the occurrence happened again. And when he witnessed it for himself, a medicine bottle and a shampoo bottle go sliding across their surfaces and fall to the floor. He was, of course, horrified. 
He realized that no one was doing anything to make these things happen. So James decided to call the police, the only thing he could think of, where he spent the next several minutes convincing the phone operator that he was not joking. But the Herman family had an excellent reputation in the local community and he was assured someone would come to the house and have a look. The police officer that came to the Herman's home was Officer James Hughes. And he later admitted he thought it was silly. But within only a few minutes of him being inside their home, he saw the containers sliding and falling to the ground after the screw-on lids just popped off of the top of the bottles all by themselves. So then he sent for a detective by the name of Joseph Tazi, who was put on the case. He was convinced that it must be some sort of natural phenomenon, but he went to the family's home, he sat, and he waited. Without fail, the bottles continued their strange activities, and the detective stated the main area of activity centered around the bottle of holy water that the parents had in their room. Then, the paranormal activity intensified. As the kids watched television, a porcelain doll flew off of an end table and crashed to the floor. At this point, James and Lucille, who were devout Catholic, called their priest, Father William McLeod, to help them. So Father McLeod came to the house and blessed every room, but it did nothing. Whatever this was, the family had begun to call it Popper, and it continued happening. So by this point, word had gotten around, and Popper had made the newspaper, the radio, and local television news. As awareness began to spread, it was even featured in Time and Life magazines. This brought curious onlookers right to the family's front door, as well as reporters and photographers. People began calling their house to give them their own explanations, you know, which strangely also included how aliens had landed in the area, and that's why the bottles had popped their caps. One theory also involved them being haunted by an old Indian chief. So for those of you that have seen Poltergeist, you'll understand that reference. The family was inundated with letters, both supportive and threatening, saying they must be, you know, Satanists who invited an evil spirit into their home. Preachers, priests, and ministers all came and stood in their lawn to pray for the family and their house. It was becoming complete chaos. And during all of this, the experience of Popper was still happening in the house. And what Popper tossed around the house became bigger and heavier. Detective Tazi never gave up. 
he contacted the closest Air Force base to see what flight plans might be timed and when, because it was theorized that maybe the sonic booms going over the house might be setting off the phenomenon. He also contacted the Radio Corporation of America, the local electric company, and came up blank. There were no underground vibrations. There was nothing. The foundation of the house was checked, and it was solid. Everything checked out. A woman had written the family, and what she said gave them some hope. She stated that she too had experienced things in her house moving or falling over, and it had been determined that, in her case, there was a heavy downdraft coming from her chimney. She had the fireplace capped with a rotary metal turbine, and all strange happenings immediately stopped. So, James promptly had the same installed on his chimney, but to no avail. And when the porcelain doll went flying off the table again, it landed 12 feet away this time, and the piece of wood it landed on was left with a dent. The activity also seemed to be increasing in both frequency and intensity. The family, stressed out of course, decided to go spend the night with some relatives, but the detective volunteered to stay in the house, knowing he'd be completely alone, just to make sure someone wasn't doing something. And it was noted that with the family out of the house, nothing had happened that night. But as soon as they returned, a glass sugar bowl went flying through the air. A large bookcase went crashing to the floor in young Jimmy's bedroom while he was verified asleep. A statue of the Virgin Mary flew into a mirror frame in the parents' room. And then Popper began ominously knocking on the walls, terrifying the family though they decided to not respond or attempt to speak to whatever this was. So this, of course, did not escape the attention of paranormal researchers, including scientists at the Parapsychology Laboratory at Duke University, North Carolina. They were working on the idea that certain people under certain circumstances could move objects without touching them. Telekinesis, if you will. One of the scientists went to the Herman home to investigate, theorizing that one of the family members was unintentionally doing this. Another theory was that the house was haunted by a prankster spirit who liked to target religious items. They observed that Jimmy was around or at the scene of an experience about 75% of the time, so they believed he might be the one subconsciously making the objects move and so on. 
But when one of the main scientists traveled to the house, Popper went AWOL, completely silent. But then again, it didn't take long for the phenomenon to begin happening again. The last incident involved the two scientists hearing a very loud popping noise coming from the family's basement. They ran as quickly as they could downstairs and they found a bottle of bleach that had been sitting in a box minus its screw on cap. The quote popper experience lasted a little over a month, then poof, gone. To this day, no one knows what was going on in the house. 67 incidences had been noted. The family was still visited by random people for quite a while after, but eventually things settled down and that was that. So what was going on? We all hear stories of haunted houses and what the origins of those hauntings might be. Some lean toward their religious faith that it is an evil spirit, either invited or just let itself in to torment the occupants of the home. Others believe it is the ghost of someone who might have previously resided in the home who could have possibly died there though I doubt that to be the case here since the house was brand new. Still others think it might be a collection of energy that has, for lack of a better word, coagulated together and acting out motions but is not conscious of itself whatsoever. And still others believe it's all a bunch of bull malarkey. Now, I haven't ever experienced anything like this, so I can't say. But I personally think that everything in this universe is made up of energy, including you and I. And perhaps when we die, that energy sticks around. But who really knows? Thanks for listening.